listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured 48. This week, as we look at the uh, fun and exciting labor news, I do have some fun and exciting labor news. Um, Once again, as we talk about many, many times on this podcast, and probably will keep talking about until the entire industry is unionized, there's my declaration, Um, the port truckers have won another victory. Truckers at Pacer Cartage were found guilty of misclassifying port truck drivers as independent contractors instead of employees, which... um, you can go back to many, many episodes of this podcast to hear about what goes random, on. Really. Yeah, there are quite a few. Um, I'm obsessed with this industry because I think that it encapsulates all of neoliberalism in one nice little deregulated in the, ni- in the early 1980s industry. The drivers are awarded $2.4 million in stolen wages in this particular case. Um, so this was seven port truck drivers who were employed by Pacer Cartage who have been awarded this money in unlawful deductions from their paycheck. That's the costs of doing business, things like upkeep on their trucks, etc. Reimbursable business expenses, interest, waiting time penalties, and attorney's fees. So this is the um, Division of Labor Standards Enforcement in California. They filed additional lawsuits in the Superior Court of Los Angeles. The hearing officer wrote, The defendant considered the plaintiffs to be independent contractors. However, the amount of control exhibited by the defendant over the plaintiffs was such a degree that the defendant knew or should have known that the plaintiffs were employees. This is one of many cases that we've seen around the country for workers who are not members of unions using things like wage theft lawsuits to challenge both their classification as workers, in this case as employees, rather than as independent contractors who don't have the right to form unions, in order to challenge the way they're treated on the job, the way they're paid on the job, and in this case, their very status as employees. Um, The port truck truck drivers tend to be tightly controlled by their actual bosses, but yet are classified as independent contractors so that the boss can make them pay for all of the costs of doing business, which is the cost of their trucks, the cost of gas, the cost of tires, the cost of insurance, any sort of fees or permits that they need to do business. And of course, all of the time that they spend sitting in their truck waiting for another load, which they do not get. Breathing exhaust, exactly. Oh yes, and one of the fun things that often they end up having to pay for out of pocket is green upgrades for their trucks. We talked about this um, sort of extensively with Susie Cagle, and I will put a link to that episode, as well as others where we talked about port truckers on the Descent website. And in another sector that we report on often here at Descent, there's been a lot of sort of promising good news also in the world of unorthodox labor organizing coming from the education sector. Uh, This week, many uh, school districts are seeing uh, students and teachers actually um, opt out of their standardized tests. Um, If you've been following education news, even as you know, a, a parent or a student, uh, you will know that the education reform movement is rolling ahead with um, sort of clamping down on the standardized test regime and also rolling out the Common Core. And as they sort of ramp up their emphasis on um, assessment and teaching to the test and drill, 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 um, a lot of teachers are joining with students to revolt against this system. And in New York, uh, we've seen some very interesting developments happening with the support 
support of more radical teachers and even the support of the teacher union leadership. Um, uh, more and more you have students uh, such as students at, at three Brooklyn schools that recently had um, uh, about 70% of their entire student body opting out of these tests. And uh, the fact that they have teachers lining up behind them, and in some cases, such as Chicago, you actually have the CTU coming out and advocating openly for these uh, students who are refusing, uh, it, it's a really interesting point in the movement because it shows that there is sort of cross-school solidarity. And frankly, I mean, you, you could argue that the teachers have more at stake because, um, in, in a sense, they are being held um, directly accountable for the performance of their students on these tests, whereas students are told, you know, if you, it's your choice to opt out, you know, there won't be any direct uh, harmful academic consequences for you because these tests are new or they're experimental or whatever. So for individual students, they are given that option explicitly, whereas for teachers, um, it's always sort of in the ether that you have this expectation that you're expected to bring up your test scores to a certain degree. So with this sort of collective effort on the part of both teachers and their unions and the teacher and the students and the parents uh, together revolting against the testing system, you actually have a much more broad-based collective movement that's going against some of the mainstream education reform rhetoric. So hopefully there'll be more developments coming out of this um, and a sort of broader rethinking of what school reform really means to the families that are most impacted. So this week I was struck by a study that um, Catherine Rample at the Washington Post reported on. Um, this new study found that the long-term unemployed become much happier as soon as they retire. Um, the authors, Rample writes, argue that this happens because formerly unemployed people no longer feel inadequate about not having a job. This is interesting to me because, of course, we have a long-term unemployment problem in this country. You may have heard of it. You may be suffering from it. Um that is nowhere close to being solved, and at the same time, we have an ongoing debate where one side wants to raise, not lower, the retirement age. Um, the dignity of work is something that people on the left and the right like to talk about, often citing studies that show how unhappy the unemployed are. But if, in fact, it's more likely that the thing making unemployed people unhappy is the, quote, permanent pressure to fulfill the social norms of their social category that makes them unhappy, rather than the sadness of not having work to fill your time with, um, then when we discuss solutions to the long-term unemployment problem, like lowering the retirement age or even providing a basic income, um, those become a lot more palatable. If we destigmatize unemployment, perhaps the unemployed will be less miserable. Of course, only if that destigmatization comes along with providing a replacement for the income one loses when one doesn't have a job. Right. I mean, not just employment rights, but unemployment rights. Yeah. 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 And the idea that everyone is entitled to a life after work. Imagine yes. that. Yeah. Um, and uh, the last bit of news is also coming from the logistics industry. Uh, these are not port truckers, but they are um, definitely a part of the just-in-time sort of global uh, system of manufacturing and pushing around goods. Uh, there's been uh, a slew of recent labor actions going on across Europe in Amazon warehouses. And um, there have been, starting with uh, workers in Germany going on strike earlier this year, and they're continuing their work stoppage uh, this week um, due to an, a protracted uh, dispute 
overcompensation in working conditions. Um, in France, there are similar efforts going on uh, with workers taking action to fight for fairer working conditions. And in the UK, um, they've actually not yet succeeded in formalizing um, a real union, but uh, there are promising efforts going on in the UK Amazon warehouses to um, sort of uh, get their temp employees on a regular sort of uh, employment system. Um, in the UK, there's been a phenomenon that's sort of parallel to the permatemping industry here in the United States called the zero hours contract, which is basically just um, constant on-call work, um, essentially working without a contract. But the idea is that, you know, you're working for technically, uh, you know, as little as zero hours, but you're basically um, employed at the whim of your employer whenever they need you. And in an industry like Amazon, um, they basically run kind of, you know, modern day sweatshops in these warehouses. Um, so right now, um, what they're doing in the UK is interesting because in the absence of a full-fledged union, they're actually reaching out and going straight to consumers and launching online petition drives in support of the workers, trying to expose some of the rather exploitative, horrific working conditions that go on within these warehouses. And uh, this has been a tactic that's managed to work um, in on the European continent, and we'll see if it spreads to the UK. Um, meantime, uh, perhaps some Amazon workers in the U.S. might be interested in taking some lessons from their brethren over uh, on the other side of the pond there. Um, but definitely, um, if we, since Amazon is about to take over the world of online retail, um, hopefully we'll have a little bit more unity in the way we think about labor um, in these sort of global hegemonies. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at thecentmagazine.org. And in the past couple of days, all over the news, um, the biggest labor story has been coming from an unexpected sector of the labor world, one which is not often acknowledged. It is the world of college athletics. When uh, s student athletes at Northwestern University uh, decided to partner with the United Steelworkers and push their case before the National Labor Relations Board that they were, in fact, uh, in an employee-employer relationship and that they deserved um, the right to form a union. This has sent shockwaves through the um, rarefied world of elite college sports and it's raising some interesting uh, debates about what it means to be a college athlete, what it means to be a worker, and how our labor should be classified when you are supposedly um, playing sports on a college campus for a scholarship. So this week joining us to discuss these issues and some of the ramifications of the NLRB ruling. Uh, we have Professor Lee Adler of Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. He is also a member of the newly launched uh, Worker Institute at Cornell, and that is an institute that is devoted to the study of new forms of labor organizing, particularly among low-wage and immigrant workers. And uh, he'll be joining us to talk about some of the implications for labor organizing in the world of college football. So I guess we want to start with, um, can you break down the, the NLRB's decision on Northwestern? Most people have heard that, it, that the football team have the right to form a union, but what do you think is most significant about it? I, I think what's the most significant thing about it is that it looks at the dual nature of what 
the NCAA calls student athletes, but I think that the board actually calls athlete students in, yeah. in the way it talks about it. And, and, and actually recognizes that something that I call dualism, which is that a person can actually be two separate legal entities at the same time and have rights under one aspect of the entity, even if they don't have rights under the other aspect of the entity. And I think that's the most significant uh, thing about the decision. We'll talk about the athlete part of that. Um, why, in particular, is it important for these athletes to have union protection? I think to answer that, it's best to, to look at their explanations. They're very concerned about long-term health implications of playing major Division One football in a highly competitive structure. They're worried about um, the, the research that uh, keeps showing uh, more and more precisely about long-term musculoskeletal and uh, concussion slash brain uh, type damage injuries. And they're worried uh, because they know that 90 or more, maybe 95% of them are not heading anywhere in particular in terms of professional sports and a big payday from professional sports. And they are concerned about the implications uh, for themselves 10 years from now uh, when they ha are no longer of any commercial use or usage to uh, uh, a big football school. Who's going to protect them? Who's going to cover for them? Um, who's going to uh, deal with the fact that they really never, uh, and I'm not saying this is true of all players, but who's going to deal with the problem uh, that, is, that is built in here that uh, a number of the players don't get degrees or that they get degrees um, in, uh, we'll just say, less than rigorous academic kind of undertakings at college. So in this discussion over whether or not they do indeed count as employees, the issue of compensation has been brought up. And some people have tried to make a distinction between being compensated in terms of scholarships, which is ostensibly what they are there to get um, in order to support uh, them as these student athletes or athlete students. And they make a distinction between that and what we would ordinarily think of as wages that are earned by professional athletes. Can you talk about this legal distinction and whether or not it really means anything in this debate as far as whether they're playing for scholarships or playing for regular wages? Well, if, if Northwestern was, uh, meaning the university, was able to convince, uh, in this case, next goes to the full National Labor Relations Board, if they were able to convince the board uh, that what is taking place here is an academic undertaking. And as part of an academic undertaking, there are academic benefits from being a student athlete, quote unquote. And also, um, they receive a scholarship because of uh, what they contribute to the overall academic and uh, athletic uh, atmosphere at the university, as opposed to primarily contributing to the athletic atmosphere at the university. If that were true, then Northwestern would win, I think, and, or would have a much better chance of prevailing. But in, in this case, um, the 
the regional director really dug in deeply uh, around the uh, commercial implications of um, the work that is done by these folks, these uh, athlete students. And when he examined all the different facts, he felt that they were much more like employees and whatever they were receiving in terms of scholarship was really remuneration uh, of some form uh, in terms of their athletic contributions, not because of their student contributions. And as a result, um, he, he sort of like liquidated that distinction, if you will. And furthermore, uh, it, in the decision, and this is quite important, um, the, to the extent that wages or compensation is a pretty big issue in the case in some form or another, he explained that the, um, the controlling aspect of the Northwestern University apparatus, starting with the way scholarships are handed out, to the way coaches and assistant coaches and others under their uh, supervision control <clears throat> the athlete students that they, quote, give scholarships to, um, that that control factor is enormous in terms of uh, essentially fitting into the historic U.S. Supreme Court precedents and also the National Labor Relations Board precedents about how they determine whether somebody's an employee or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, some of the critics of the NLRB ruling said that um, treating the relationship between the, the administration and the student-athletes, uh, making that into more of an employee-employer relationship would change the nature of the institution of college athletics. That is, they're saying there's something about the culture of the institution of college sports that would be sort of violated by introducing this uh, traditional labor relationship. And, of course, this is not the first time we've heard sort of a cultural argument being advanced in order to deny workers their right to organize at a workplace. So can you, can you put that in the context of an academic setting? Um, how do you think that this argument about employer-employee relationships not belonging um, in a college setting or in a campus setting, um, how, does that, how does that apply here uh, where you actually have a set of student-athletes who are saying we are exploited basically in the same way that ordinary workers are? I feel like it's a paper mache argument. Uh, I, I feel like it's a very weak, uh, I would actually call it a lame argument uh, in this sense. Uh, the same argument was made about oh, this uh, sacred relationship between graduate students and professors would be uh, harmed or hurt if they became unionized. Um, they have said that, um, uh, in fact, just recently it was, it was argued that if um, a union uh, would be brought to the uh, Chattanooga VW plant, it would damage the culture of cooperation that exists at the plant. Um, they, that, that business about culture and the implication of culture of implicate uh, of um, of uh, cultural relationships, uh, etc., that would be damaged or impaired, uh, is really an argument that is an attempt 
to bolster either the uh, paternalism or the patronizing or the uh, very strong employer um, slash subordinate relationship in all these settings. Um, it, it, it is the same argument that is made all the time, and really it would be a much better argument if they said, hey, we don't like this because there's a power shift in this relationship between a coach and a player, uh, between a football team and a scholarship player, uh, between a university and a scholarship player who has representation in a union, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It changes the power dynamic, which is absolutely true. It would feel a lot better to me if the employer or the university was making a, an argument like that instead of trying to duck and hide behind some kind of fable that they call uh, a cultural transformation. Of course there's going to be a change. Of course there's going to be some type of transformation. Uh, but that doesn't negate the fact that the law permits finding these folks to be employees. Speaking of fables that have come up in all of this, um, I've seen also people who are opposed to employee rights for these college athletes bringing a Title IX argument that um, the idea because men's sports are the ones who are pushing for employee rights right now, um, and because those men's sports tend to be the ones that make the money, that this would end up hurting women who are also college athletes. Um, that smells like concern trolling to me. Um, and I've also seen people argue that this could, in fact, help women athletes because Title IX would require that they have equal rights. Um, but what do you think the impact would be on women's sports or other sports that aren't basketball and football that don't bring in as much money for their schools? I don't know. Um, I, I, I do believe that overall Title IX will, of course, survive. Right. And, and, and Title IX has, uh, it's highly imperfect, of course, but it has generated uh, the possibility of more and more and more. Again, there's been cutbacks in the last five years or so, but over the last 25 to 35 years, uh, and I, I can't remember exactly when Title IX became law, but I'll just say, safely, you know, two-plus decades, um, we have seen um, a, a pretty decent uh, increase in involvement of women in the intercollegiate athlete, athletics. Um, in many uh, programs, the women's uh, athletic undertakings don't generate anywhere near the monies uh, that the male uh, ones do. Uh, some of the big basketball schools, of course, this is a little different, but but other than those, um, it, there's not, you know, generally speaking, the, the male uh, intercollegiate sports generate a whole lot more money, and, and in particular because of football. Um, that being said, um, you know, my feeling is, is that if the National Labor Relations Board is going to find, uh, and if a federal court would enforce its finding, because those are the next two steps that would have to take place to validate uh, what the uh, players at Northwestern are seeking. Um, if that would occur, I believe that women athletics uh, under Title IX would gain and would not lose as a result of that. Uh, the reason is, is that if it turned out that 
the major universities chose to deal with the unionization of their athlete students, um, then they would have to deal equally with if women and women's teams chose to unionize, they would have to deal with them similarly. Um, and I feel that that could not, I mean, there, there, there could be, uh, as there has been a trend in recent years where they keep trying to trim back certain women's programs in some form or fashion and uh, use different kind of uh, fictional explanations uh, for equality under Title IX. I think that trend is a trend. It's, it's separate from unionization. That will continue, and women will have to keep fighting uh, for equal opportunity to have intercollegiate sports under Title IX. Just because there's a law, that doesn't mean they get it. They have to fight for it, as they have always had to fight for it. But I don't think that the board, uh, if they choose to unionize, uh, will have necessarily a negative impact uh, on Title IX uh, or the efforts to struggle to maintain presence and opportunity on college campuses uh, for women. I think that they're going to have to be treated similarly. And the question will be um, what the, quote, employer and major corporations who, and I'm speaking mostly about media companies like ESPN, et cetera, how they chose, choose to deal with the consequences if indeed this becomes a formal uh, legal uh, part of college life. That will be the much bigger contradiction, not so much Title IX issues. What I mean by that is that I truly believe that the fortification, the economic fortification, and the now shaky, formerly invulnerable NCAA conglomerate that controls all this, they're going to have to make some big decisions if the board and the federal court enforce a finding that athlete students can be employees because it's going to change the whole relationship on college campuses about college sports. And depending upon what choices they choose to make about those things, that's going to determine much more about what happens in college sports than Title IX or Title IX opportunities. Right. I mean, Title IX is the law, and it needs to be enforced, and the advancement of the rights, the lawful rights of students in one sector of college sports should not, you know, like we shouldn't use the fact that it won't be equal right away as a piece to sort of not give rights to anyone, right? Well, it's still not equal even today. I mean, right, you know, exactly. without any ruling. I mean, it's still a battle every year for women uh, around this question on, on in, in terms of intercollegiate sports. It's, a, it's, it's, it's just an ongoing struggle. Uh, there's so many different ways that they try to marginalize um, uh, women's advancements by uh, sometimes they cut back on quote, minor male sports, and thus, by doing so, they can cut back on women's sports, right. like an equal kind of cutback, so to speak, while, you know, college basketball and football, you know, dominate and their revenue streams remain strong, if you will. Um, but, but those things are going to be modified. The, the greatest change, aside from what is an athlete student's life will be like if, if this goes through, um, the other, and um, perhaps geopolitical or 
economic change will be what kind of decision people like ABC and ESPN and NBC and all those uh, corporate entities, what they want to see happen as a result of the legal changes. Because they'll dictate that to these major universities. The university, uh, uh, as I'm sure many of your readers are well aware, is a full-fledged corporate citizen. Um, Long, uh, it still has the pretense of an academic institution, but its primary primary function in American society is to be a type of uh, good corporate citizen. And they're going to respond to the values and needs of other quote, good corporate citizens um, yeah. as opposed to their athlete students. And that's a good time to point out that this decision is for athletes at private universities. So yes. Certainly yeah. corporate citizens. Right. Yes. And, and, and actually, ironically, that means that the ruling actually will have a modest impact if, if, in fact, it goes all the way because of the fact that most of the major, you know, huge football units, if you will, if you took the top 40 or top 45 teams, there's, a, there's probably considerably less than a quarter that are private universities. Most of them are public universities. And that is a whole different ball of wax because, by definition, uh, they're not covered under the National Labor Relations Act. Right. A whole different ball game, if you will. Uh, yeah. <gasps> so, sir, sticking with the topic of civil rights in college sports, there's a debate about the racial tensions that sort of underlie this structure of the college sports, the college athletics industry. And, for instance, in the new plantation, author Billy Hawkins has actually described Division One athletics as um, a kind of racial apartheid in the sense that you have um, largely black players on these white-dominated college campuses and these white-dominated college sports institutions. And you have, um, you know, clearly players of color who are routinely exploited as commodities all receiving pretty much nothing in terms of compensation or so-called scholarships. And in many cases, even their educational prospects end up being squandered because of the rigors of the college athletics program and their grueling training regimen. Can you talk about the social dynamics that go on within college sports as an institution and how that impacts on their labor rights ultimately well you know it's funny i i have um i have very little experience with that question per se because i teach at a university that is not um its major sport is um essentially a white sport ice hockey Uh, yes (laughs) very rare numbers of african-americans or hispanic uh citizens, students uh, that are involved in ice hockey or in lacrosse, Uh, although lacrosse has a long history of being uh, a a, a sport of choice for uh, certain people of color. Uh, A Native American named Jim Thorpe is one of the most famous uh, lacrosse players, and Jim Brown, who is probably the greatest football player in the history of America, was also a lacrosse player. He's an African American, and um, but but so those are the two big uh, sports: Cornell and football and basketball, which have um, basketball has you know a fair fairly significant proportion of African Americans at Cornell, and 
and football has um, less of the proportion. Um, so we don't quite have that. But what I do know is that the that the at these bigger institutions and at these um, at these football schools, um, oftentimes there's all kinds of racial implications uh, for different relationships that exist. So, for example, uh, more and more we see uh, in the last 15 or 20 years uh, African-American or maybe even Hispanic quarterbacks, but for a long time that was a white position. Um, we, we see large numbers of African-Americans and uh, a lesser degree but still significant of, um, of Hispanic-Americans uh, on these football teams you know, that are primarily uh, driven or on major universities that have tiny fractions of black or uh, brown uh, student enrollment. And in um, all that student enrollment, you know, some very, very significant proportion compared to white student enrollment are engaged in important, quote-unquote, sports uh, uh, responsibilities and endeavors. Um, so we have that. Um, and I don't know about the tensions increasing, as one of the commentators uh, that you just referred to, because I don't see it, and I haven't... That's not something, uh, unfortunately, I have... Um, take uh, one of my areas of expertise is... Uh, public education, K through 12, and I could talk forever about that, and, you know, and, and all the way through K through 12 about race and its implications. But once it gets into the higher ed, it's, it's a little bit less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you brought up the issue of um, K through 12 and civil rights and, and racial segregation. That's no-brainer. All of the amazing research and incredible writing uh, in the last 10 years on this subject, uh, despite the purported charter school successes of very, very poor uh, Hispanic and, and black children, some of which are absolutely real and, and noticeable and, and, um, and successful. Um, the, the, the major writing in this area uh, is about these phenomenal resegregation of American public schools and how it is becoming more and more and more entrenched and the U.S. Supreme Court made sure that that would continue to happen in their case decisions in 2007 about Louisville and Seattle schools that were each trying so hard to figure out ways to gently but firmly uh, integrate their schools in some form or fashion, and both were struck down as violative of, of the federal law. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was just gonna add that, like in that very in that very polarized racial landscape, we have um, you know co the the prospect of sports recruiting trickles down even on the K twelve level, and and you actually have schools that are seen as feeder schools for college sports, and and that also affects sort of the racial dynamics within the education system even at those lower levels. But yeah, I would think all that stuff's in play. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting you brought up college hockey because one of the things I find interesting, and I'm a huge hockey fan, is that to get into the NBA or to get into the NFL, you have to play college basketball or football. To get into professional hockey, you don't have to come out of a U.S. college. You can play junior hockey in Canada. You can play junior hockey in Europe. You don't have to go through this college system in the way that like, the NCAA is the only feeder to major pro basketball and football, which is such 
a different dynamic about those two sports in particular? It's a very, 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 quote, thoughtful conflict. It's, it's really remarkable, just the whole thing, that everything ranging from the business about one and done in college basketball. Yeah. You have to be, uh, I think, a, a junior or have to, quote, serve three years at a college right. before you can graduate as a football player, get into the NFL. I mean, these things are all, they're like little concessions uh, to the kind of concerns that are sort of laying by the side of the road um, that the NLRB now has picked up as, you know, in this Northwestern case. But um, the, the, the rulemaking, the conduits, uh, the, uh, the structurings, um, all of these things are all very, very carefully orchestrated and designed uh, to make things look a little bit fair for college or student athletes or athlete students, um, when in fact, uh, fairness would essentially revamp the whole structure if, if fairness was in play. And fairness uh, for athlete students uh, has been uh, heavily marginalized by organizations like the NCAA. And I actually think that the NCAA's policies uh, and their sense of entitlement and their sense of monopolistic control might really uh, bring them down quite a few pegs, um, not only from this kind of challenge, because even if this legal challenge doesn't work, this concept is not going to go away. This concept is adding another indicator in the vulnerability of the way the present setup is. And there's a case called O'Bannon uh, that deals with likeness or appropriating or expropriating the likeness and the silhouettes and the actual imagery uh -huh. of college students and, uh, and, and athlete students and, and for which many, many people ranging from gaming companies to marketing companies make just oodles and oodles of money on. And the, 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 Athlete students don't get anything for that. Mm -hmm. Nothing yeah. for that. And that expropriating, I consider expropriating, the more formal and polite term is appropriating the <laughs> likeness of individuals. Um, I just don't think that's going to be continuing much longer. And that is really going to have huge implications uh, when that changes because that's a big funding source uh, for outfits like the NCAA, and, and, and it's going to change uh, the ability about revenues, and revenues are going to move around and have to be shared differently um, if, if they're successful in that O'Bannon case. And it's hard for me to see how they couldn't be, but, I, you know, it's funny. When you're in federal court, it's pretty dangerous. That's all I can say, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. and highly uncertain. And highly uncertain. Yeah. I mean, but just those, even those are those are those are major chinks in the in the conglomerate uh, uh, armor of the triad of you know these major universities, ESPN and their buddies and the networks, and the NCAA, um, who are the um, policy and trade association that takes 
um, like a, a dip of money from all the things that move back and forth. Um, and I think that those things are, that, that set of prerogatives is really uh, under scrutiny and challenged. I mean, when you have a college athlete, excuse me, a, a college coach at a major football institution, and there are a number of them who make more than $5 million a year now, um, and then you have uh, somebody like, they call him Johnny Football, Johnny Menzel, uh, this wild character from Texas A&M who's coming out a year early. He was investigated this spring because a couple people uh, told investigators, either at Texas A&M or NCAA, that he had set up a little table and was selling his autograph for, I don't know, 20 or 30 or $40, and they, they found out it wasn't true, um, and so the investigation was halted, but he would have lost his status as, quote, an amateur. Talk about fables. That's what all these fellows and ladies are called who right. work for these major universities. They're called amateurs, and so they cannot take a penny of any sort other than the scholarship. Right. So they control the total economic reality of these individuals because the umbrella of amateur is so broad that it covers anything that they can make money from as a result of their success as a college athlete student. But on the other hand, um, the control is so tight that the combination of the two yields a legal analysis that they're employees mm -hmm. in part. Yeah, I, I think it's it's so interesting because college athletics is such a unique sort of universal cultural touchstone uh, for everyone around the country, and yet it's also a really glaring symbol of kind of the commercialization of the university and, and of the college campus. And I, I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on, um, you know, through this lens of the politics of college sports, um, do you see any new directions, perhaps, in the labor movement in the higher education sector? Um, we've seen, uh, you know, labor actions going on on college campuses that involve both, you know, staff and, and workers as well as faculty and a lot of cross-sector um, organizing, you know, graduate students linking up with uh, adjuncts and tenured faculty as well, um, a lot more kind of intersectionality in, in, in different sectors of college uh, uh, higher education labor, and I was wondering if you have any thoughts on how the potential uh, unionization movement uh, in college athletics might play into that whole dynamic of labor in higher education. Um, I, I, I've given it just a little bit of thought. Um, I think your question is a wonderful question. I, I wish I had given it a little more thought um, before today. Uh, I can offer one or two observations, though, that may have uh, some uh, value to listeners. Um, one is that I find it to be very interesting, at least in this effort, meaning the Northwestern effort, that the United Steelworkers are involved in this. Uh, I'm not sure if they're fully funding uh, the organization, the College Athletic Players Association, I believe is, is its name, but they're certainly helping it. They're offering their expertise, and I think that they're also offering some financial help, or maybe um, a lot of financial help. I, I, I'm not totally certain of that. 
Um, and I think that's very important because the steel workers are attempting to find uh, different and unusual areas that have been historically ignored uh, in terms of their most recent organizing efforts. Um, in the next little bit, um, uh, some colleagues of mine and myself are uh, uh, we we are part of a, a book effort that's coming out that examines in four countries the role of unions in advancing the interests of migrant and immigrant workers. Are they really advancing their these workers' interests or are they not? And um, in as part of the research I did for for that book, um, I found that. Uh, I learned from a, a, a colleague in Arizona that the steel workers were heavily involved in um, some community and union organizing of car wash workers in Los Angeles. And we followed that for a while, and just in the last year or so, the steel workers were successful in getting the first collective bargaining agreement between uh, this mostly undocumented worker uh, group of uh, people and um, car wash owner and operators in Los Angeles. And um, this effort is now spread to the East Coast and it's happening with uh, community organizing groups and also they're getting some help from some uh, uh, RWDSU locals in New York City. Um, so the steel workers are looking at this um, as a new area where workers' rights uh, employees' rights have not been recognized, and they're investing their time and resources, et cetera, in this kind of effort. And so if they continue to do this, and if other unions um, are, uh, as I, I think from some of your reference points, I know SEIU is doing a lot of uh, adjunct and perhaps graduate student organizing in the Massachusetts area, um, uh, I think a lot around Boston, et cetera. Uh, there's been some recent activity in NYU, again, with graduate student organizing. There's huge efforts in the Midwest and different places in Illinois because of the uh, horrible uh, deconstructing of the academic workplace uh, with regard to um, adjunct professors and uh, temporary professors who are paid <coughs> peanuts um, compared to what their efforts in industry is. And so there's a lot of ferment around this. Um, there isn't yet a decided direction. There isn't yet a decided movement. There's a lot of pieces of moving parts that are going on. And frankly, I think that um, the idea that the Northwestern players might want a union, that the National Labor Relations Board might say it's okay to have a union and that a federal court, if they go, if they could do it, uh, would enforce that order, I think that that would be a heck of a boost uh, for all the things that are taking place that you mentioned. With all different kinds of work classifications, now to add athlete students to that classification it could be a very, very positive boost for the other efforts. And uh, what one would hope, of course, would be that several of the unions that are engaged in this could create a consortium of some sort to really fully and completely cohere a strategy um, that would deal with all of the 
moving parts of workers in, in these various uh, and differing situations that need the help of having someone represent them. Yeah. yeah. And for a final question, um, moving off campus have implications for other misclassified workers in other sectors? Or I'm also thinking about other athletes who are supposedly amateurs like Olympic athletes or... Yeah. Um, I don't know so much about Olympic athletes because that is something I haven't thought about. Um, but in terms of misclassification, this is an issue that is something that I have actually studied for quite some time. And, uh, you know, misclassification ranges from uh, there's a famous case out of New York State involving workers' comp where uh, injured jockeys were not considered to be employees when they got hurt if they fell off a horse because they were independent contractors of some sort. Yeah. And uh, there was an effort made to try to get them covered under workers' comp because you couldn't be covered under workers' comp unless you were an employee of the raceway. Right. Um, in uh, Microsoft, they spent the whole decade of the 90s litigating uh, their uh, permit temps, their non-standard workers. Right. They had the idea that they didn't want to have an HR department and they wanted to have very few employees. And so anybody who wanted to get hired at Microsoft had to go to a temp agency okay. and they split the, the deal with the temp agency and brought them aboard and, and supervised them but claimed that they weren't their employees. They were misclassified, and at the end of the decade, finally a federal court issued an order, uh, uh, quote-unquote, assessing uh, Microsoft $100 million for that misclassification. Um, and it goes on everywhere, all over the place, every day of the week in this country. And one of the great losers are the state and federal governments who cannot collect taxes. It's very hard to collect taxes from independent contractors. Um, so... Uh, and by the way, that's something that uh, I've seen tweets and other things on social media suggesting that um, Northwestern players might not be in too big of a hurry to get in the union and be found to be employees because they might have to pay taxes on their scholarships, you know, yeah. uh, which is a, another controversial issue. Um, but I, I think that um, it has been so difficult in large part because, again, there is no central body like a union or a consortium or a consortia of unions that are focused on the issue. And as a result, everybody has to fight this battle on their own. The FedEx workers have to fight the battle on their own about whether they're really employees of FedEx um, or whether they're independent contractors. It's really one of the most amazing cases. We don't have time to talk about it right now, but it's one of the most amazing independent contractor cases. It's bounced back and forth and over and under in the last five or six or seven years um, through all sorts of federal court litigation. Um, and, you know, what the problem is is that there's nobody essentially monitoring the situation that has the ability or the power to step in and really do something about it, if you will. Um, because for corporations, it's a gift to misclassify people. It's, it keeps their costs down, keeps their liability down, keeps their responsibility down, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they love the idea that these laws are so unclear and loose and, 
and it's impossible to win these cases half the time. So anything that adds sort of oomph to the struggle is valuable. Whether it would really make a great deal of difference, I think until we get a centralized uh, grouping of progressive forces that are determined to deal with this question, um, it's going to continue to play out, you know, each entity uh, trying to solve their own problem. And that was Professor Lee Adler of Cornell University. We'll have links to his work on our website, and you can learn more about the NLRB ruling at dissentmagazine.org. And now it's everybody's favorite time of the podcast, the time when we say ARG. I wish I'd written that. So this week, I am making a specific point with this ARG because this is the regularly scheduled time of the year when Paul Ryan releases his horrific austerity budget and progressive commentators trip over themselves to prove how awful Ryan's latest plans are. Spoiler alert, they haven't changed much. They're still awful. Except we know every year what's going to be in Ryan's budget, and we also know that since Paul Ryan is not actually in charge, it's not going to be the actual budget. So this week, I wanted to highlight an excellent piece by recent belabored guest Dave Dayan at Al Jazeera America about another budget that gets not nearly the same amount of attention as the one put out by Paul Ryan. The Congressional Progressive Caucus consists of 70 members of the House, and it released its own budget proposal in mid-March, and unlike Ryan's proposal, it would create an estimated 8.8 million jobs. It would also, Dayan writes, cancel the sequestration spending cuts that have cost hundreds of thousands of public sector jobs, along with cuts to food stamps and federal unemployment insurance enacted in the past year. And federal workers, who have dealt with a pay freeze for the past three years, would get a 4% raise. Called the Better Off Budget, the CPC's plan would also would spend money now in order to help generate revenue later, and it would also tax those who can actually afford to pay the taxes. A carbon tax is included in the plan, as well as lifting the cap on Social Security taxes in order to pay for increased Social Security benefits. Dayan argues, and I agree, that the lack of attention paid to the CPC's budget narrows the set of alternatives being presented to the public. If every reporter who is currently flailing over Ryan's cuts to necessary programs, cuts, I should repeat, that are not being enacted, devoted some time to the real ideas in the CPC's budget, maybe we would have a broader debate. Dan attributes the increased attention that the CPC's budget did get last year to some of its items being included in President Obama's budget this year. So perhaps we should talk a little bit more about some of the people in Congress who are heroically trying to actually do something for those long-term unemployed we've talked about several times on this podcast, and not so much attention to the people whose ideological position, as always, is based on kicking the poor. Or I think you can back their agenda could just be summed up as no, let's not do that. Basically, so um, oh no, they want to do things. Right, they want to destroy things. Right. Yes. Yes. It's not just no, let's not do that. It's let's actively destroy these programs like SNAP that work fairly well. Um, another issue uh, I wanted to raise for this week is also taking a different look at an overreported story: the pop cultural labor 
news, I guess, was the launch of the Cesar Chavez movie, the biopic. And it's been getting a lot of press lately. Some are lauding it as kind of an unprecedented foray into the mainstream cinema world for a a movie that is essentially about a labor leader. So that's rare enough and perhaps, you know, worth noting. But also worth noting is what's been left out of the movie. And I wanted to highlight a piece this week in Color Lines by Laurie Flores called The Neglected Heroines of Cesar Chavez. And she talks about the role that women played in the farm workers movement and in the great boycotts, not just looking at the leading lights like uh, Dolores Huerta, who's, of course, certainly influential in her own right, but also at the countless other women who uh, were not really named in the history books, but nonetheless played a crucial effort on the front lines of organizing in the fields. These were women who often braved extraordinary violence alongside men at the picket lines. They were also, uh, at the same time, trying to raise families. Um, In many ways, they had a lot more at stake because they were also the main breadwinners for their households, and they were raising families in addition to being activists. And uh, Flores raises the important point about the dynamics within the leadership of the labor movement as well, and how Dolores Huerta basically made the choice to devote um, most of her life during her years of of motherhood to organizing. And uh, she courted a lot of controversy for that because of her devotion to the political cause. And people tended to see her as unhinged, tended to demonize her on both, you know, the left and the right as sort of this uh, crazy woman, right? Um, Because she was was so politically active and perhaps was, uh, was not paying as much attention as people thought she should have to raising children. And so all of that the sort of gender dynamics of the movement kind of get eclipsed in the movie and in sort of the hagiography surrounding Cesar Chavez. And of course, the movie is controversial for a lot of different reasons. Um, uh, you know, uh, other groups of workers, such as uh, Filipino laborers, are also largely left out of the whole plot of the movie. But as movies go, you know, they oversimplify things. Um, no big surprise there. But uh, it is worth highlighting the fact that even in some of the rather extensive labor histories that have been written on the farm workers movement, um, the specific role of women and the uh, incredible unique inequities that they faced because they were women in farm work uh, have been consistently ignored. They were ignored while they were happening, and they've also, some, unfortunately, been ignored by a lot of historians. And, of course, the plight of farm worker women today continues to be a huge problem, ranging from exposure to pesticides to child labor for uh, women who um, have children who are also brought into the fields, as well as sexual assault, sexual exploitation of women in the fields. So all of these things are still ongoing decades after the Great Boycott, so it's still an ongoing struggle. If you have seen the Cesar Chavez movie and you have some thoughts, you are welcome to share them with us at belaboredatdescentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. If you have any other thoughts, suggestions, ideas, questions for us, you are welcome to send those our way as well. We'll be back next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight twin You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag Belaboured.